You're listening to Elk Point Baptist Church. Subscribe to our podcast to hear every sermon and like us on Facebook by searching Elk Point Baptist Church, located in Elk Point, South Dakota. I'm sure just based on the title alone, you guys are very curious what uh, we're going to be talking about today. So uh, this is a continuation, and for the next two weeks as well, I'm going to be preaching on this uh, theme all around the enemy. And um, we had a previous lesson, and, and I'm going to recap that here for you as well, uh, for those that might not be familiar. Uh, but we're in the book of Joshua after the Battle of Jericho and after the battle at Ai. Uh, Israel has had some victories in the Canaan land, the promised land. Uh, Israel can be depicted, well, I, I won't. Yeah, I'm not getting ahead of myself, I guess. Um, It can be depicted as um, God's people. I mean, it is obviously God's chosen people, uh, but it can be likened to saved people. It can be likened to us. If we were to look at parallels, Israel is the saved people, the chosen people, God's people, the people under his protection. So the first thing I want us to imagine is two different angles to the stories that we're going to be navigating for the next few weeks. View number one is from the Israelites. This view is from the side of God's people, the believers. This is the assumed view through this story. As we read through Joshua, it's all about God's people making it into the promised land. However, there's another view. View number two, I want you to picture from the enemy side. This view is from those that in this story are the enemy, but are also the lost. People outside of God's or people are destined to perish. It's not something we often think about. We look at our personal walk, we look at our personal lives, but the people outside of those that are saved, that believe in Jesus Christ, that are chosen by God, are lost. They are destined to perish. We are commissioned by Jesus in Mark 16, 15 to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. They are lost, they are scared, and they have no hope. So you look at the things they do, the the decisions they make, and they make them out of fear. They make them out out of desperation. They are seeking some kind of way to make sense of everything and to basically fight their way out of a situation, whatever that situation is in their lives, um, their position, their, their current circumstances, their um, salvation, whether they think about it that way or not. We as God's people are not lost. We, uh, when we are scared, we have a protector who will not leave us nor forsake us. We know this because Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear thou not, this is God speaking, I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea. I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. This is something that the lost people, the enemy, if you would call them that, don't have. And we have a blessed hope. Titus 2.13 says, Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. We have something to look forward to. We are excited about him coming back. Armageddon, Doomsday, the Revelation, um, 
the other names that you hear of that is all depicted as something horrible and frightening. Well, that's because for the people that aren't saved, it is. But we have a blessed hope, a glorious appearing of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what we're looking forward to. It's the great revealing. It is something that we're excited about, and they don't have that. So we're looking in these stories, two different sides in the next few Sundays. We want to look at, one, yes, we can liken ourselves to the saved people, the lessons that we'll learn from that, but we also want to look at the enemy. What are they going through? Why do they make the decisions they're making? How can we, as God's people, reach out to them? Think about the joy, peace, and promise of being a believer, and then picture it from the other side. Picture what the enemy, a.k.a. the lost, is seeing, what they're feeling, and what they're missing. That is a lesson we can learn from these, these next few things here. So I want to recap, what, first of all, what the enemy did before today's verses, uh, starting in Joshua chapter 9. Uh, in verse 1. And if you're not already there, it, it was on the screen, so that was a bit of a prompter, but we're going to start in verse 1, read through it. Uh, I'll, I'll say a few things about that, and then we'll go into our main verses for today. And this entire lesson today is a precursor to the two main lessons, and that is, um, well, I, the name's escaping me now. <laughs> But it's going to be all around how God used this situation that we're talking about now to do something amazing with the Gibeonites and how God used the saved, God's chosen people, Israel, their mistake to do something amazing. Um, So verse 1, And it came to pass when all the kings which were on this side, Jordan, in the hills and in the valleys and in the coasts of the great sea over against Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, heard thereof. In other words, they heard about all the victories Israel just had and what God was doing. They gathered themselves together to fight with Joshua and with Israel with one accord. And when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that Joshua had done, or had done unto Jericho and to Ai, they did work willily. Remember, that means craftily. They were very sneaky and went and made as if they had been ambassadors and took old sacks upon their asses and wine bottles old and rent and bound up and shoes and clouded upon their feet and old garments upon them and all the bread of the provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua unto the camp at Gilgal and said unto them, or said unto him and to the men of Israel, we become from a far country, now therefore make ye a league with us. If you remember from our previous lesson, the the way the law worked here, the way they understood Israelites and their laws was that if it if they were from a far far country and they were to make a league with them, that would be okay. But they knew that they had no other choice but to get rid of the people in the Canaan land. So these people only lived 24 miles from here, from where they were currently. They were not from a far land, but they were pretending to be from there. And in verse 7, the men of Israel said unto the Hivites, uh, Peradventure ye dwell among us, and how shall we make a league with you? And they said unto Joshua, We are thy servants. And Joshua said unto them, Who are ye, and from whence come ye? 
And they said unto him, From a very far country thy servants are come because of the name of the Lord thy God. For we have heard of the fame of him and all he did in Egypt. See, another few things that were clever here is they didn't mention Jericho. They didn't mention I because there's no way they would have heard it by then. It would have been too soon to know about those events. But they had heard and had made journey from a very far country because of the things that happened in Egypt. Okay? And they said more than once, we're from a far country. We're your servants. We, we believe in your, or we, because of the name of your God. And, and verse 11, wherefore our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spake to us, saying, take victuals with you for the journey and go meet them and say unto them, we are your servants. Therefore, now make ye a league with us. This is our bread we took hot for our provision out of our houses on the day we came forth to go unto you. But now, behold, it is dry and it is moldy. And these wine, or these bottles of wine which we filled were new, and behold, they be rent, and these our garments and our shoes are become old by reason of very long journey. And the men took their victuals and asked not counsel at the mouth of the Lord. That was Israel's first mistake here. They didn't seek God's counsel. And all these things, all these facts, if they were to really look at it, if you remember in our previous discussion on this, they should have come with clean clothes, plenty of clothes, plenty of food, and been well prepared to display themselves as ambassadors of another country. But no, they pretended, and they had all these woe-is-me situations to trick Israel into believing their story. And instead of seeking God, they didn't seek God, which we've seen in previous times. And if we can relate it as saved people to the Israelites here, we don't often seek God in situations, and we stumble and fall short many times on our walk. Joshua, because of this lack of counsel with God, made peace with them and made a league with them to let them live, and the princes of the congregation swear unto them. They made an oath that they would uphold this treaty. So now we're to our verses for today, 16 through 27. And it came to pass at the end of three days after they had made a league with them that they heard that they were their neighbors and that they dwelt among them. And the children of Israel journeyed and came unto their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon and uh, Chephorah and Berath and Kirjath Jerem. And the children of Israel smote them not because the princes of the congregation had sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel and all the congregation murmured against the princes. Now, one thing we know if we read our Bible is we're not to swear by anything. But now that they have, they're stuck in it. Verse 19, all the princes said unto the congregation, we have sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will even let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swear unto them. And the princes said unto them, Let them live, but let them be hewers of wood and drawers of water unto all the congregation as the princes had promised them. And Joshua called for them, and he spake unto them, saying, Wherefore have ye beguiled us, saying, We are very far from you when ye dwell among us. Now therefore ye are cursed, and there shall none of you be freed from being bondmen and hewers of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. So in other words, what just happened here is instead of being free and safe, I mean, in some ways they're now safe because they're in, in, in uh, the protection of God's people, but they are now slaves 
servants of God's people forever. But not only that, it says, for the house of my God. So now they are to do all these things for God's house, for his, his tabernacle, his temple, his, for, for the worship of God. So it's really interesting how these Gibeonites, these enemy, the, the foreigners are now being put in a position where they have to serve God. We'll come back to that in, in another lesson. They answered Joshua and said, Because it was certainly told thy servants how that the Lord thy God commanded his servants Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore we were sore afraid of our lives because of you and, and have done this thing. And now behold, we are in thine hand, and as it seem, seemeth good and right unto thee to do unto us, do. And so did he unto them, and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel, that they slew them not. And Joshua made them that day hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord, even unto this day, in the place which he should choose. Let's pray. Lord, you, you have given us a commission to go out and to preach to all the world and, and to share the good news with with everybody around us, Lord, and Lord, we, we pray that through these lessons we can learn how to have your sight into other people, Lord, to be able to see people the way that you see them. Lord, we can easily see them as the enemy, but Lord, you have a bigger plan and a bigger purpose, and you, you didn't just come to save those that you have just picked out and chose, Lord. No, you came to save all who are lost and all who are weary, Lord, and all who seek you. And we pray, Lord, that we can have a heart to be defenders of the enemy and, and seek the enemy out, Lord, and, and to, to share the gospel among them and to, to bring them into your house. And, and Lord, just to be your servants in a way that you can do a mighty work in people that we would never think to do a mighty work in, Lord. And we pray... Or that you would do a work in our hearts today, that we would be used by you in a mighty way. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today we're looking at enlisting the enemy. But I want to give you a quick illustration. On Friday, March 29, 1984, Robert Cunningham ate a meal of linguine and clam sauce at his favorite restaurant, Sal's Pizzeria, where he had a regular customer for seven years or had been a regular customer. His waitress, Phyllis Penza, had worked at Sal's for 19 years. And after his meal, Cunningham made a good-natured offer to Penza. He said should, or that she should, that, he, that she could either have a tip now or split his winnings if his number was drawn in the upcoming New York lotto. Penza chose to take a chance on the lottery and she and Cunningham chose the numbers together. And on Saturday night, Cunningham won. The jackpot was $6 million. So then he faced the moment of truth. Would he keep his promise? Would he give his waitress a tip of $3 million? Well, Cunningham, being a police sergeant, husband, father of four, and grandfather of three, said, I won't back out. Besides, friendship means more than money. You see, promises are to be kept no matter what the cost. And at some point, Joshua discovered that he and the princes had made a mistake, and no doubt they were very humbled, embarrassed because of it. Imagine being 
the leaders of over 2 million people only to, only to find out that your rash decision could now have a major impact on your nation. And you can't back out of it. And we have to give these leaders of Israel credit for being men of their word because they could very easily have been men of lesser character and saying, said all, you know, all's fair in, in love and war and forced the Gibeonites to divulge information, tortured them, and, and used them as an advantage in the upcoming battles. To violate their oath would have been to take the name of God in vain, and, and this would have brought about a divine judgment. And years later, King Saul violated this oath, and God judged the nation severely. God takes oaths very serious. So instead, when the Jewish army arrived at Gibeon and the neighboring cities, they didn't attack them. In verse 17 and 18, we see Israel journeyed and came unto their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chephirah, Berath, and Kirjath-Jerim. And the children of Israel smote them not. See, that's the decision they made. Because the princes of the congregation had sworn unto them by the Lord of God, by the Lord God of Israel, and all the congregation murmured against the princes. The people were not happy. If the leaders of this church made a blind decision that cost us dearly, I'm sure we would all agree we wouldn't be happy. <laughs> So that's what they're dealing with here. They made a decision. But why did the Jewish people, I guess we don't even have to wonder why they grumbled at their leaders. This covenant with Gibeon would cost the soldiers dearly in plunder, and they would never get the protection from those cities. But even worse, the Gibeonites and their neighbors might influence the Jews with their pagan practices and lead them away from the Lord. If you remember, there's a reason that these people were to be removed from the land, that their idols were to be torn down, their temples were to be destroyed, the cities were to be burned, because the sin within that promised land needed to be gotten rid of because it would have a further impact down the line. And there are times, spoiler alert, later down the line where this does have an impact. This decision and other decisions of people they did not end up wiping out cost them dearly, cost their children dearly. Moses had given Israel very stern warnings against compromising with the people of the land. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, we see this, and now they had foolishly made a covenant with the enemy. Let's look at those verses. Verse or Deuteronomy 7, verse 1 through 7, When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land, this is the Canaan land, whither thou goest to possess it, and hath cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt, remember the word shall, we, I think we talked about this. Um, it was one of the, re, one of the recent things I, I was talking about. I think it was a Wednesday lesson. Shall is an absolute, okay? Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. 
You have no option. There is no alternative. God says you shall not, you will not, you cannot, absolutely do not do this. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, and the, uh, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. But thus shall ye deal with them. So this is how you will deal with them. You have no options here. Ye shall destroy their altars and break down their images and cut down their groves and burn the graven images with fire. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a, a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all the people. There was nothing unique about you or special about you that caused God to choose you. It's just because God set his love upon you. So do not do these things. So if God can stay true to his word and keep his promises, then that's the standard. And we must stay true to what we have committed. And we wonder what decisions the common people would have made had they had been in the place of the leaders. And it's easy to criticize them after the fact for grumbling and murmuring. But that wasn't the end of the story. We see Joshua and his associates, the princes of, of Israel, teach us a very important lesson. If you, make a or if you make a decision and you make a mistake, you admit it. And then make your mistake work for you. You give it back to God. And we've seen time and time again, Israel make a mistake and God do something amazing with it. How many people can relate in your life that a mistake you made, God turned around and did something you wouldn't expect? It's constant with me. <laughs> I can't tell you how many mistakes I make on a daily basis, but somehow God turns it around and I just have to praise him for it and thank him that he did something good with something I did bad with. Including this lesson, I'm hoping he does something great here. <laughs> Joshua 9 verse 19, he said, But all the princes said unto the congregation, We have sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel, now therefore we may not touch them. The leaders put the Gibeonites to work hauling water and fuel for the service of the tabernacle, where both water and food were used in abundance. And in later years, the Gibeonites were called the Nethanim, which I have a slide for that if you want to write this down. The Nethanim, they were the given ones, given to assist the priests. And I put a few references up there as well if you want to look at that. But they were, they were now... Uh, labored as servants in the temple. What an interesting use to bring the enemy in and now put them in God's, God's house. This is where we want the lost to be. We want our friends that aren't saved, our family that's not saved here in God's house to hear the word. They may not have been you know, asked, hey, come worship with us. But they are there, and by being there, they are hearing God's word. They are hearing about God. They are 
seeing what God's doing in the nation. In Joshua 10, which is our our next two lessons, Joshua chapter 10, we're going to see how God overruled Joshua's mistake and used it to give him a major victory over five kingdoms at one time. And of course, the Gibeonites would rather submit to humiliating service than be destroyed like the inhabitants of Jericho and I. And there's no evidence in Scripture that the descendants of the Gibeonites created any problems for the Jews. But it's likely that their service in the tabernacle and later in the temple influenced them to abandon their idols and worship the God of Israel. The fact that over 500 Nephilim returned to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity in in Ezra suggests that they were devoted to the Lord and his house. They had a choice after captivity to go somewhere else, but they went back with God's people. See, that's an impact God can have in in lives that were originally intended for something else. They, They were destined for death. They were destined for judgment. Satan, you tried to do something clever here, and God turned it around and used it to save these people. That's a beautiful thing. Out of their desperation, out of their fear, God used this to lead them into a position where now they are in the house of God and now they worship God. (laughs) So the very thing the Gibeonites hoped to attain, their freedom, they lost. They desperately wanted to remain free men, and in the end they became slaves. But the curse, as described in the verses here, became a blessing for them. They were us. Yeah. We were all Yeah. Same. Yep. And, and sometimes we can have that attitude looking at people like they're the enemy. Right. I mean, how many times have we gotten angry at somebody that we should have been tender with and, and saw differently? But no, we, we look at them and get angry at whatever they're caught doing forgetting all the long that they are lost, you know? I like that. I mean, it's, there's so many different ways you can look at these. I mean, we label, I labeled it as the enemy to get probably more attention that way. But, no, these are, are the lost. These are people that just don't know God yet and, and need God. And the next two lessons are going to hit very hard on that. Um. So for those on the, on the live stream, Jesse was saying um, there, there's two different ways you could look at it. Because today, in, in our today and age, we don't really have enemies. We have, um, you know, the enemy could be more our thoughts and, and our actions and, and um, you know, those that aren't saved. It's, it's not necessarily we, we have a direct enemy anymore. We have Satan and, and his, um, you know, the people that he uses and stuff, but... Uh, really, we're, we're all the same now at the, at the point that we're all open for salvation and we're all, you know, we're either lost or not lost now. And um, there, there isn't really two sides. There's this, those that believe in Jesus Christ and those that are sent out to save those that don't know Jesus Christ yet. You know, those are the hurt and lost, not the enemy. They're the ones that are destined to die, not, not the ones that are evil and horrible and wicked. Um, so again, it's our job to, to bring them in. But at the same time, we, you, if you remember on the previous lesson, the, the cleverness, the craftiness is something that we as God's people have to 
be aware that is out there. Satan is very tricky and very clever and very deceptive and could very easily lead us astray and and get us into a position that we don't want to be in. But thankfully, like in this situation, God can, can take that craftiness and change it around in a way that doesn't destroy God's people, God's God's people that he said he will be with and stay with forever and protect. He's still protecting them. But now he used that situation in a good way. And, and we're going to see in the next two lessons in a very mighty way, used God or uh, Satan's craftiness and cleverness and flipped it on his head and did something amazing. This is the grace of God. He's still able to turn a curse into a blessing. Satan is trying every single day, every century, for hundreds and thousands of years, he's trying to curse God's people, curse every single person on this planet, and, and keep us from worshiping God. And he wants to even he curse God, but, but God's above all that. He's already conquered all that, and he turns every single curse into a blessing. It may not feel like it for us all the time, and it, that's not to say that we're not going to go through trials and turmoils. That's a guaranteed. I think that's what we were talking about last time. We shall be in tribulation. Though it's usually true that the natural consequences of sin must run their course, the grace of God can not only forgive, but it can also overrule mistakes and often bring blessings out of sins and failures. Which leads us all the way back to if we had anything to offer, if we were even remotely perfect, then it would be then what Jesus did on the cross would be worth nothing. But because we do fail and because we do sin, because we often make mistakes, often we need God's grace and we need his, his ultimate plan and his forgiveness. And for him to step in and be the father that he is for us and correct that mistake and help us get back on the path. <laughs> now, we, if we think about that enemy side, the lost side, we're going to make mistakes trying to share the gospel too. We're going to make mistakes with those people. We're going to hurt relationships we didn't intend to hurt. But with God's grace and his power, Lord willing, he can still shape those things around, do something good with it, regardless of how bad we stumbled in that conversation or in that relationship, God can and will do something with that soul.